You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Monster House presents. Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at Patreon.com forward slash Monster Talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. What if the Phoenicians discovered America? 1421, the year China discovered America. Christopher Columbus actually knew that America existed, and he was aware that Muslims lived there. So how did Muslims first discover America? Many of these pre-Columbian explorers might have come from Africa. Researchers believe Greek sailors made the treacherous transatlantic crossing in their triremes under sail and oar power. But what about the early Irish? Did ancient Celts from Ireland also make the voyage to the Americas? It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Who discovered America? We don't know their names, but the indigenous tribes who've been here for thousands and thousands of years before Europeans first showed up, well, surely they deserve credit for getting here first, right? Well, you wouldn't know it from watching documentaries on Discovery Channel. Vikings, the Celts, Welsh, Brits, Africans, Phoenicians, Egyptians... Heck, they'd even have you believe that imaginary people like the Atlanteans or the denizens of Mu, places that don't even really exist, somehow have primacy over the people who were literally here, living their lives and leaving vast archaeological records. Many of these peoples, like the Maya, are still here despite book after book and show after show wondering what caused the mysterious disappearance of the Maya. We're joined today by Dr. Brian Regal, 
His latest book is titled The Battle Over America's Origin Story. It's not about who discovered America. We already know that. It's about the people who think they know better and the various ideas they've tried to push into the public consciousness over the past 200 years. Some of these alt-histories come from a desire to claim a special place in the story of America, and others come from a desire to whitewash away the real story. The history of this quest to change the narrative is full of strange stories and weird fringe characters, and yes, even some monsters. I wish we had had more time to talk with Brian because we barely scratched the surface, but a link to his book is in the show notes. As a warning, it's an academic volume, and as we used to say in the VHS days, it's currently priced to rent. But if it's out of your price range, please pester your library to stock it, and maybe once Palgrave Macmillan makes back their costs, they'll release a paperback version. Price aside, the content of this book is fantastic, and Regal helps contextualize the strange desire that so many people seem to have to tell the story of America through the lens of their particular favorite mythical explorers. Monster Dog. Well, we're excited to welcome back Brian Regal for, for what I believe is your fifth visit. So making you part of the exclusive five-time club. Five-time club. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I deserve some sort of special... Once again, congratulations on your fifth appearance. Oh, well, thank you, thank you. Would it's you like a... your uh, club robe now? Oh, uh, sure, yeah, yeah, you bet. Oh, I guess someone needs to learn the club handshake. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five. You're great. You're great. Uh, as I said, I wasn't your first guest, but I was certainly in the first season. It's it's funny. I wanted to yeah. talk to you uh, about about this latest book that you've done, but I was trying to figure out how to tie it in to monsters. You know, we ostensibly, this is the science show about monsters, but every now and then we stretch what a monster might be to absurd uh, lengths. <laughs> Yet I, after having looked at the book, it actually covers a lot of themes that are perfectly appropriate for monster talk. I think listeners will enjoy reading <laughs> this work because the topic is, really important and there is a bit of monster stuff in there i mean i have a whole section on the on the um the nephilim and you know the giants biblical giants yes 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 exactly there you go. Yeah. Well, but and that was actually the thing that i thought really tied it all together was a story of the story a story about the history of america and the origin story is not necessarily the, what you've done is you've written a history about the ahistorical aspects of America. It's like the search for the American myth through all right. these fringe approaches, which is really, really interesting. Yeah, the, 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 the book topic. is not, I'm not trying to prove who discovered America. I mean, mm. I know who discovered America. What I was really, what I'm really most interested in, this is the sort of thread, which, you know, because I've been on your show a number of times and we've talked about Sasquatch and the Jersey Devil and Montague Summers and, you know, all that. And the, the kind of thread which holds all this, to, for me anyway, in my, in my work, is that what fascinates me is this relationship between professional scholars and amateur investigators. And that is, you know, the, that's the story of the search for Bigfoot. That's the story of the search for the Jersey Devil. Uh, you know, this this sort of clash uh, between what we can what we can 
sort of vaguely referred to as, you know, professional scholars and amateurs, uh, you know, crack pots and eggheads. Uh, and and mm -hmm. that's the underlying conceit of this whole story about who, dis you know, trying to figure out who discovered America. It's this long conversation between professionals and amateurs. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, Brian, I ask you, who discovered America? Oh, the ancestors of the Native Americans. <laughs> Obviously. Next. <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions, Miss Nosy? <laughs> Spoiler. Anyway, thanks for listening to Monster Talk. All right, next week we'll be looking at... Yeah, that, was, that was easy. Next that time. Was easy. But yeah, so your, your book is about more than just two discovered America, but also about the, the convoluted history around the many alternative historical perspectives. Right. You can you can define, you know, discovery in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. And the way I approached it for this book was you can't say you've discovered something if when you show up, there are already people there waving at you as you show up. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds so familiar. If, if you want to say, okay, well, who arrived here when there was nobody already here? And that's the ancestors uh -huh. of the Native Americans. Exactly. Right. Yeah, just uh, like depending upon who you, yep. yeah, depending upon whose work you 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 follow or accept or whatever, um, the first human beings to come into what we now call North America uh, did so uh, roughly thirty to forty thousand years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Everybody else comes after. The kind of history that we're taught in schools in, in Australia, I mean, we've got a similar colonial history as uh, North America, and uh, yet we're the, the terminology and the language that's used is uh, very similar to what's told here, or who discovered America, uh, you know, who discovered Australia, it was, it was the British, it was, uh, they came out on the first fleet. So I think there is a problem with textbooks for uh, for students in, in uh, you know, high school and and earlier years as well, uh, just the, the way that it's framed is positioning it as though it was found, these countries were found by the British or found by the Spanish. Uh, yeah, you're, ab you're absolutely right. And that is one of the major aspects of this whole story is that there are a dozen, at least, different mythologies about who discovers America and none of them are willing to accept Aboriginal people. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's mm -hmm. as if the, you know, one, one of the points, one of the main points I argue in this book is that none of these stories, whether it's Columbus or Prince Madoc or the Vikings or Templars or, you know, Zheng He or Wei Shen or uh, Abu Bakri, uh, these stories have virtually no factual evidence, uh, you know, except for maybe the Vikings, which we can discuss later. Uh, but it's the Vikings without Leif Erikson. Leif Erikson's got nothing to do with it. Um, and okay. Okay. one of the fascinating, one of the things that fascinated me about this when I was doing all this work is that the American discovery theorists will go through any lengths to not say the native people. It sure seems like it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. They they treat the native people, and and this same thing in in the case of Australia, 
uh, in New Zealand, um, they will they will go through the most, you know, convoluted circumlocutions uh, to treat Native Americans or Native Australians, the Aboriginal Australians, as basically just one more set of plants. Wow, you know, or or animals, uh, not as human beings. Mm. Uh, that they're yes. okay. We yep. can't say they didn't show it because there's so much evidence that they did. So we can't discount them in that way. But what the the mm-hmm. uh, all these different groups will then argue is, well, yeah, but they don't really count. Just never quite thought of it in terms of uh, you know seeing Aboriginal people or Maori people uh, as just being flora and fauna. But yeah, that that is a really uh, interesting way to, to put it, and um, yeah, very disturbing. And I, I'm assuming that that whole mentality comes out of just colonialism. I mean, there's the, the the same thing happened with Egypt too, where like there's pyramids, and then there's these people living down at the bottom of the pyramids. There's lots of people who think, well, it wasn't these guys; it must be somebody else, you know? Whether right, this, despite all these written records <laughs> that <laughs> say the Egyptians built the pyramids. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it, yeah I, I here at King mm-hmm. University, where I work, I teach two sections of our freshman intro to history, which is a general education class, which all the students have to take no matter what their major is. And one of the things I do uh, when we get to Middle East, the ancient Middle East, Egypt, you know, Carthaginians, all that, is I do this very dramatic thing where I go and I close the classroom door and I say, okay, I'm going to tell you who built the pyramids, but you got to be careful because this is explosive information I'm going to give you in the wrong hands. It could do, you know, who knows what, how it could send the planet spinning off in the universe. And you know, the, the students get all, Oh, what is it going to tell us? What? And I say, okay, the ancient pyramids of Egypt were built by, and they kind of lean forward, you know, like I'm, I'm going to kind of give them some, they were built by the ancient Egyptians. <laughs> and the, Spoiler. It, you can just see the sort of crestfallen <laughs> wave go through the crowd because like, oh, you know, they were expecting some, I said, no, the, the pyramids, we know there, there's really no question. It's not, it's not even a question. We know who built the pyramids of ancient Egypt. It was the ancient Egyptians. Uh, wasn't aliens from Alpha Centauri. They weren't using, uh, you know, laser beams or anti-gravity machines. They wanted to do something. Their, their, their culture developed in such a way uh, that they felt these sort of structures were necessary for their, for the, for the pursuit of their religion. And, they sat down and figured it out and did it. So uh, this book, to me, it seems like it's part of a trend in your research where you're looking at figures that are kind of outsiders. They're on the fringe of acceptability, but they're always somehow seeking mainstream recognition. Is, is that like a conscious through line in your research and how you do your topic selection? Or is, it, is that the kind of people that, it, that you're attracted to when you want to like, why are these people like this? Is, is how, how did you come to pick this topic, I guess? And is it really, am I, am I, am I reading that right? Is that really? No, no, you're reading it absolutely right. I, I am my goddaughter who I love dearly 
uh, was a psychology major in college. And she once said to me, you know, if I really wanted to be a psychologist, I could make my whole career about studying you. <laughs> I am drawn to tragic characters. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the cryptozoology and, and, and this, you know, American uh, discovery myth, it is just packed to the gills with tragic characters. Uh, these people, men and women, who pursue these questions when everyone tells them you're wasting your time. When everyone tells them you're wrong, uh, they do it anyway. And they just stay at it and stay at it. And I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. It, that. That was sort of the heart of my uh, book about Bigfoot and, and Grover Krantz. Uh, you know, the, these there's this kind of trope in movies where you have the hero scientists, research, or whatever, spending their lives um, pursuing some question that everyone tells them, you know, there's no answer to this or you're wrong about it or whatever. And sort of the, they get ridiculed and no one believes them. And at the last scene, the, as they're on their deathbed, the door bursts open and some <laughs> young acolyte comes in and Professor, we found that we found the proof. You were right all along. Everyone knows you were right all along, and the hero gets to die knowing that they proved this thing. But the problem, uh, the the version of that, uh, for it took me a long time to figure out what to call these people as a group, and I'm still not sure if I have it right. But in the book, I use the term um, outsider authors. Mm, mm -hmm. Uh, and yeah. their story is the exact same story, but at the end, as they're in their, in their um, dying on their deathbed, the door doesn't come flying open, and an acolyte mm -hmm. doesn't come bursting in and saying, "You know, the whole world knows now that you were right all along." Uh, it, it, they they die knowing that they didn't prove mm -hmm. anything that they were trying to prove, and that their their lives will, you know, disappear into the into the murky corners of history. Uh, and I'm just attracted to that sort of thing. Uh, and so that's why the, you know, that's that's sort of the that's kind of the thread that runs through all of my work. Okay. Um, I'm glad I'm not that, that was real. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, no, you're right. You're you're right. Um I I hope that <laughs> People, when they read my work, that's one of the things they get out of it. At the at the surface level, it's really easy to go, well, that's not true, and that's not true, and that's not true. So ignore this stuff. But it doesn't matter because these stories keep coming back. And I think anything that gives us insight into better understanding the kind of people that are attracted to these ideas, the kind of people that create these ideas, and the ideas themselves and why they are so persistent, these these are really important tools right now, maybe more than ever. Yeah, uh, you're you're absolutely right about that, especially here in the you know the early 21st century. Okay, so Prince Madoc didn't discover America. King Abu Bakri of Mali didn't discover America. But despite that, we shouldn't just dismiss all of this because learning about this, learning how people went about doing this and what they found, what they didn't find, I think is very useful to us. Uh, I've always argued that we learn as much about the past by studying 
for lack of a better expression, losers than we do by studying winners. <laughs> so, Brian, are these people really seeking a historical truth or are they reifying personal mythic visions? What's going on here? Well, they all the people that I looked at, they would not consider themselves fringe authors. They wouldn't consider themselves paranormalists. They consider themselves mm-hmm. true scholars. Uh, one of the one of the other threads that runs through all of this is you have the outsider authors who genuinely feel this way, that they are the true scholars. That the so-called academics, they are the myth makers uh, because they have various agendas that they're trying. Whereas these amateur scholars, they don't have agendas. That's what they believe. They do, but that's not what they believe. They believe they are writing the genuine and true history of the discovery of America. Uh, And the archaeologists out there and the historians out there, they're they're just sort of trying to set themselves up as kind of official gatekeepers and they they ignore the truth they ignore the facts and the evidence uh because it doesn't fit their worldviews uh, and and so they set themselves up in opposition to this saying that yeah okay we don't have degrees we don't have uh, uh, institutional affiliations but we're the real scholars we know the truth all those other eggheads, uh, they're they're just telling lies. Yeah. Now it's a chunky book. There's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of topics that you cover, and then yeah, a lot I crowbarred of, a lot of stuff into there. Yeah, and you you cover <laughs> so there's the concepts, and then there's the people who promoted those concepts, and then there's the context of where they were historically and culturally, and you go from sort of in the 1800s and some of these, you know, the ideas are much older, but some of the people that are promoting them uh, all the way up to now and like in the very present. So you, you sure. there's some of these internet mm-hmm. people, but I want to, and I didn't know how best to talk about this because it would be really hard to try to cram all this into a single one hour interview, but let's, mm-hmm. can we talk about maybe some of the mythic characters that are in the text? And then you could sort of contextualize them with some of the names that are associated with it. But I, sure. I wanted to start with the one that you already mentioned has nothing to do with this, yet he's all over yeah. this story, and that's Leif Erikson and right. the Vikings. Sure. Well, Leif Erikson, we think, was a 10th century Scandinavian character. Uh, What is the Viking theory of American discovery actually has two strands to it. There's the part that is more mythical, then there's the part that we know of. Of all these stories, the the, the Viking theory is the only one that has any kind of evidence. Uh, Back in the 1960s at Lanso Meadow up in Newfoundland, an archaeological site was discovered that was shown beyond the shadow of a doubt to have been a Norse uh, settlement. But we don't know any individual people from that. We know they were there. That's really beyond doubt. Uh, and so we know that that Norse people came to North America way before, like 500 years before Columbus. But then we have this other story 
that is often referred to as the Vinland Sagas. This is a medieval manuscript that exists. I, I think it's currently in the University of Copenhagen Special Collections. It's part of a much wider or much larger medieval manuscript uh, on the history of Scandinavia. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, when you, we talk about Atlantis, people get this idea that there's this huge body of original uh, primary texts on Atlantis when it the, it isn't really. Uh, you know, it's 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 basically a chapter out of Plato's book in which Plato tries to explain everything in the universe. And he figures, well, there's the story about this place, Atlantis. I, it's out there, so I got to sort of wedge that in there somewhere. And so there's this large medieval manuscript about Scandinavian history. And one fairly small part of it um, is about th this sort of group of characters. Uh, you have Eric the Red, who is kicked out of Iceland uh, because he kills a guy. Uh, and, you know, what will happen later on when Americans start latching on to this Leif Erikson Viking story in the 19th century. They, part of the reason they do this, the, 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 that they get hooked on this, is because they get it into their heads that the Vikings were these kind of proto-democratic Republicans who are mm -hmm leaving Scandinavia to find a place where they can be free to, you know, follow their religion, which of course is Protestant Christianity, but it actually isn't. Uh, and, you know, set up this kind of, of libertarian uh, fantasy land. The problem mm -hmm. is Viking society was a slave society. Uh, Eric the Red has to leave uh, Iceland because he kills the guy who killed his slaves. And so he goes off to Greenland and eventually his family comes along with him. He's got a couple of sons. He's got a the son, of course, is Leif Erikson. He's got a daughter, Freitas, uh, who is the psychopathic homicidal, I don't know, hellion, uh, who is actually one of the, is actually the first non-native female mentioned in any descriptions of North America. But uh, what happens is uh, Eric starts this settlement in Greenland and he gets a bunch of friends from Iceland to come over and join it. And, and start, it's like a real estate deal. Uh, he tells people, come over to this place. And they're like, well, isn't the weather there really bad? He says, no, no, it's wonderful. <clears throat> I'm going to call it Greenland. That, that, that shows you how wonderful it is here. And that actually gets people to come in. And one of Eric's family's friends is a guy named Barney, Barney Herlifson. And he comes along a little bit later. And as he is leading a little flotilla of, of longboats over to, uh, over to uh, Eric's settlement, he gets lost. And he kind of wanders west and he sees land to the west of Greenland. He doesn't actually go there, but he sees it. And he finally figures out where he is and he heads back and he gets to the, the settlement. And he says to Eric and to Leif, 
I saw land over here. Maybe we should go check that out. So some time goes by and Leaf says, yeah, I want to go do it. Let's go see what, you know, Barney, uh, Barney, Barney, Barney found. And I love this because if, if the story is accurate and we don't really know if it is, but if the story is accurate, I love the idea that the first European to see North America was named Barney. Yeah. It's not bad, but <laughs> it's, a, it's a great little detail, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Does that mean that the, the ruins left there by the Vikings are technically Barney rubble? <laughs> oh dear! I could feel a pun coming on. You're killing me, dude. So Leaf gets, you know, Leaf takes a couple of boats and a bunch of his friends, and they head west and they run into land. Uh, but it's not very nice. Uh, and so the first place they get to, they call it Helluland. And they said, "Well, let's head south. Maybe we'll find a, a nicer place." They Leaf keeps heading south. And he eventually finds a place. This is according to the Vinland Sagas. There's one copy of this. It's a handwritten medieval manuscript. And he finally finds a place that where the weather's kind of nice and, the you know, it's sort of woodsy and there's water. And, he, and, and they get up there and decide to go exploring around. Now, one of the guys that goes with Leif is his godfather, Tyrker. Tyrker wanders off by himself and he gets lost. And so now Leif and the others, they're, they're like freaking out. Where's Tyrker? Where's Tyrker? And so they're, they're at, wandering around looking for him and they finally find him. And he's lying up against a tree, drunk off his ass because he found vines with grapes and he just starts, you know, Hammering down grapes, and he gets drunk. <laughs> Again, this is according to the Vinland Sagas. And so because that happens, Leif calls this area Vinland, the land of vines. Uh. And they, because he kind of likes it, they set up a settlement. Uh, the idea is we're going to start chopping down trees, which we can then ship back to... Uh, Greenland and then back to Iceland and maybe to the wider Scandinavia, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and we can make money off of this. Uh, so that's the legend. They have an encounter with the native people, uh, which doesn't go particularly well for the Vikings, you know, because it sort of ruins that whole Viking, manly, warrior, Viking, mm -hmm. you know, berserker sort of thing. They They get their asses handed to them by the native people. Uh, who, according to the Vinland Sagas, have mechanical catapults. Wow. That, that they start firing bombs at at the Vikings. Well, if you get your butt kicked, you you know, what better way? You should see the technology they had. It was yeah, quite impressive. Yeah, it's not yeah, yeah, they had yeah. these crazy machines. Uh, at some point, the idea gets put into the story that the the vikings call the native people scralings mm -hmm. uh but we're really not, there, there's a lot of problem problems with provenance in this story um there's really very little actual factual evidence except for about 15 or 20 pages worth of medieval manuscript saying these things happened uh, there, there's, ver there, there's virtually no mention of any of this outside of the Vinland sagas. Uh, and it, 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 
they've they basically come wind up going home hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing chumba casino coincidence i think not everybody's loving having fun with it chumba casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Um, my favorite part of this is that Leif's sister, Freitas, she comes over as well. And again, if the Vinland sagas are accurate, she's one hell of a woman. Uh, she is this sort of self-possessed mover and shaker uh, who wants to – who is looking to to turn this – Vinland place into a kind of power base for her. Uh, there's the story where she's married to this kind of milk toasty guy, and some of the other Vikings uh, sort of oppose her power grab. And she gets a couple of guys on her side to sneak into the house where all these people live to murder them all. So they go in and they hack up everybody and they come out and she says, okay, did you kill everybody? And he said, well, we killed the men. And she's like, well, I wanted you to kill everybody, including the women. And they were like, well, we don't want to kill women. We're, you know, she gets upset. <laughs> she snatches an ax away from one guy and she goes charging in there and she murders all the women inside. Uh, and there's a later story where there's this kind of little skirmish between some of the Vikings and some of the Skraelings, where the Skraelings are kind of coming out on top of, you know, beating the Vikings. And she can't stand this because you're supposed to be Vikings. You're supposed to, you know, you're not supposed to be afraid of anybody. And to inspire them, she pulls all her clothes off, takes a sword, and sort of charges headlong <laughs> into the scralings, waving her sword around, screaming like a mental patient. And the and the Native Americans are like, what the hell is this? What's this crazy white woman doing? Uh, and they they just sort of turn and run. Uh, and so she's you know cursing them. She curses the Viking male Vikings for being cowards. Um, but uh, you know it, it's it's you know the, it's this kind of rip roaring adventure narrative. Mm of Scandinavian people in this new place. Now, one of the problems we have here 
is that we always hear this term Viking. Mm-hmm. The problem is Viking is sort of a 19th century invention. The at the time in the in the 10 hundreds and the 11 hundreds when all this stuff is happening, uh, you know, with the the sort of great for lack of a better expression, golden age of the Vikings. Nobody called them Vikings. They didn't even call themselves Vikings. Everyone referred to them as the Norse or the Northmen, uh, not Vikings. It's thought that the term Viking is sort of a Victorian invention, uh, particularly by uh, uh, Wagner, when he starts writing these stories about the Holy Grail. And, you know, that's that's where we get this image of the Viking warrior as a sort of beefy guy in fur and body armor and the helmet with the horns on it, all of which are Wagner's invention. Uh, there's no evidence that these these Norse pirates uh, ever wore helmets with horns on them. Uh, in fact, one of the great Viking theory proponents, Eben Norton Horsford, he refuses, who writes lots of books on this, He refuses to use the term Viking Uh, and other sort of late 19th century authors on uh, on the story. They they refuse to use the word Viking. They say there's no such thing as Vikings. These were Norse explorers. Uh, At Mm. best, they might accept the term Norse pirate. Uh, But the idea of Vikings in this in the sense that we sort of when we today, when we think when we hear the word Viking, we get this sort of image in our heads. Uh, That's basically a recent invention, and it was not an idea that existed at the time these people existed. You know, you mentioned stuff. It is. You you mentioned Horsford. Now, he and his daughter have a lot to do with a different story about the Norse in North America. Like they're bringing him down the all the way to New England, right? Yes. Okay. And there's how much evidence for that? Uh, about zero, <laughs> R- <laughs> roughly in the realm of right. zero to zero. Okay, right in the, the, between those bars. <laughs> like... Yeah, right. There's a little bit of wiggle room, but uh, now he's a really interesting character, uh, and he's like a classic outsider, whatever you want to call them. Um, he's actually a trained ac- trained academic. He's a chemist. He's a classically trained chemist who learns. Uh, chemistry and put, he goes to graduate school in Germany uh, and he studies under this guy Liebig, Justus Liebig, uh, who basically gets credit for inventing industrial chemistry. Uh, you know, he's really interested in applying chemistry to food products and food production. And so Horsford studies under this guy. Uh, and Basically, if, if there are any cooks or bakers out there in the audience, if you use baking powder, whenever you use baking powder, you can essentially thank uh, Eben Norton Horsford uh, because he invents modern baking powder. He also gets credit for inventing uh, condensed milk. Uh, so he's an important chemist. But Eddie, he gets a job teaching chemistry at, at, at Harvard. He's a real Boston Brahmin. And in his later years, and this is something which drives historians like myself crazy, there's this whole thing about scientists when they sort of pass their scientific prime, 
they decide, oh, well, I got to do still, I still got to do something. I'm going to become a historian of science. Uh, and there's there's nothing more annoying than the than the scientist who suddenly decides one night I'm a historian now because uh, <laughs> anybody can do this. You don't really need to. Be, but anyway, mm. so that's what he does. He decides late in life he's going to become a historian. And he gets fascinated by the story of Leif Erikson and he decides he's going to prove this. And so he starts delving into this research. He starts collecting rare books and maps uh, and he comes to the conclusion that Leif Erikson did indeed discover America, uh, and that when but when the Vikings came to North America, they they might have gone to Newfoundland, but Vinland is actually Boston. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And uh, in part because that's where he lives. I've been to Boston, and it seemed less <laughs> Vinland and more Beerland. So, <laughs> uh, and there's this there's this sort of parallel story here about uh, the, the there is this great the one great lost North American fictional city, uh, sort of like El Dorado, and and you know, we don't normally so associate North America with those kinds of legends, but there is there's the legend of of Norumbega. And Norumbega is the supposed uh, city of great riches. You know, it's it's very much like Kublai Khan's. Um, oh, where the hell was Xanadu? Xanadu, thank you. Mm -hmm. In yes, Xanadu, the, um, it, it's sort of on that scale, and Horsford decides through his research that. Not only does Leif Erikson and the Vikings found Norumbega, but that Norumbega is basically right outside Boston on the Charles River. That's very convenient. <laughs> it really is. That's it's like amazing. a short ride from his house. You know, I mean, he can practically throw a rock out of his front door and hit the site of Norumbega. If you go there to this day, uh, there is Norumbega Tower that. Horsford wanted to leave some sort of, you know, marker to show future generations that this is where Norman Baker was. And because he was wealthy, uh, he married very well and had, you know, had a lot and made lots of money off of his. He had a huge number of chemical patents. Um, and so he had tons of money. And so he has this sort of building tower built on the site of which he of what he thinks is where norm Bega is and it's still there and you can go there to this day it looks like a giant chess piece uh it looks much more medieval than ancient norse but you know whatever um and so he decides he's discovered this and he's, he's proved it and you shouldn't even bother to question him on this. And he actually says it in those words. Don't bother to question me on this because I figured this out. I used the scientific method and I proved wow. that Leif Erikson discovered America and that Norm Bega was you know, right here outside in my backyard, basically. Wowzers. Reminds me of um, Joseph Smith just a little bit. And his his history and his research. Yeah, well, the, the Mormons have a whole the whole. I didn't even bother to no. <laughs> go into the Mormon aspect of this. I, I liked your footnote on it that. It is so complex and <laughs> yeah. huge. Um, you know, I, yeah. I, I 
I didn't have the energy. No, it's frankly, a lot. It's a lot. To, <laughs> Fair enough. It deserves another book. Yeah. You're right. It's a whole other book. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've, his... I've got a free copy of that book, in fact. What? You <laughs> <laughs> so... have? You, all of us, yeah. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> Horsford's an interesting guy for a number of reasons. He marries into the wealthy Boston family that created the famous art museum. Uh, uh, it's uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner. Is the... uh, yes, Gardner. He, yeah, he marries yeah. into the Gardner family. He marries first one Gardner daughter, and they start cranking out kids. And then the wife dies. And so he figures, well, wh- what do I do? I know. I'll marry her sister. So he marries his widowed wife's sister. And by the first sister, he creates like four or five kids. With the second sister, they have one child, and that's Cornelia, Nellie, Nellie Horsford. And she becomes sort of the apple of her father's eye. And she's the only one in this big family who kind of goes down the rabbit hole with her father about Leif Erikson. And there's this, there's a really very touching scene in where 1893, uh, even Norton Horsford's dying. And he's, he's literally on his deathbed. They're at home. Cause you, when you were rich back then, you could do that. You didn't want to go to a hospital. Cause that's where, you know, poor people went. Um, the whole family is there. Everybody knows he's, you know, about to kick off. And, you know, in the bedroom, he's covered in blankets and he can barely speak and everybody's crying. And, you know, it's very emotional. And the wife says, you know, what can we do for you? And he sort of, you know, voice barely a whisper. He says, where's Nellie? I want to see Nellie. And so she, you know, pushes her way through the crowd and sits there and she's holding his hand. And you know, it's a very emotional scene, a great movie scene. Um, and he says, I, 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 I don't have much energy left. I got to tell you this. And he makes her promise to prove his ideas, to take all the family's mm-hmm. money and prove that. Leif Erikson discovered America. And then he croaks, he dies. Um, And so she, you know, she vows to uh, fulfill this dying wish to prove that her father uh, is correct about Leif Erikson. Now she lives till like 1941. Uh, She never gets married. I don't know whether she just, you know, I don't know why she doesn't get married. Uh, I have some suspicions. Uh, her and her father were very close. She carries around a little portrait of him till the day she dies. And, uh, you know, she mm. does try to prove that that the spot that he thought was Leif Erickson's house was Leif Erickson's house. And the spot that was Norm Bega was actually Norm Bega. Uh, and so, she, you know, she she tries to carry this on. Uh, and it doesn't really work out. Nobody really believes her or him. And, uh, you know, she uh, she spends, you know, she never gets married, but she she becomes like the coolest aunt you could ever imagine. 
uh, you know, because she's a world traveler and she's really interesting and she's, you know, she knows about archaeology and history. Uh, and so that's, you know, that that's how I ended the book. I, I the the publishers didn't want me to do that. They said, well, why do you stick stick all the Nellie Horsford stuff in the chapter, the Viking chapter? I said, no, you don't understand. I'm telling a story here. And I need to use her to end the story, even though stuff happens after her. You bookended it. Exactly. I you wanted to yeah. use her to, to wrap up the whole thing. Mm -hmm. It's good. It's good. Nice. Because you open with Eben and end with her. It's a, it's a good wraparound. Right. Yeah. I, we're, we're running a little tight on time, but I, I wanted, I, I feel like we, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about uh, Barry Fell, since we are talking about academics sure, working sure. out of their expertise. Another great character. Yeah, yeah. What, what does Barry Fell bring to American history that I think was missing? Right. Well, like Horsford, Barry Fell is a trained scholar. He's an academic. He's a, he's a marine biologist who has a whole career, uh, important career, studying uh, marine invertebrates. He builds a whole career. You know, he publishes books and scholarly articles on it. And like Eben Norton Horsford in his sort of dotage, he decides he's going to become an archaeologist. And he has no training as an archaeologist. He has no training as a historian. He has no training as a linguist. And he decides that there is evidence that uh, of, of rock carvings in a Celtic language, which is, a, which is an actual Celtic language called Ogum. And it's built upon sort of lines. You, you sort of carve lines and the way the lines sort of interact with each other and the lengths of the lines. If you know how to read this, you can get, you know, a sense of what the, the writer is trying to say. Uh, and, and again, Ogum is a genuine acknowledged uh, language, writing system, but there's no people who study Ogum, and there are people who study this, who can read the, who can read the text. There's no evidence of this ever being used outside of Ireland or the British Isles. But Barry Fell okay. decides that he's found examples of Ogum in North America. And if this is correct, what that means is Celtic people came to North America way before Columbus. And he publishes a series of books which become very popular um, about you know, America BC. Uh, and you know, he, he he argues that these these ancient peoples, European peoples, came to North America way before Columbus. Brian, why do these uh, people want these theories to supplant the Columbus myth, do you think? Well, it, my take on all this is it's got tons of racialist baggage. Mm -hmm. And what you, what you find is, what I found was, that these different sort of heroes of who really discovered America are supported mostly by people from that same group. So the people who right. really support the idea of of the Welsh Prince Madoc are Welsh people. And the people who really push the Viking theory sort of trace their ancestry to Scandinavia. Uh, and the people who promote the Abu Bakri theory uh, trace their ancestry to Africa, West Africa. And 
you you rarely see people outside of that ethnic group mm-hmm. supporting the story of some ethnic discoverer of America. And what I take from all this is that you ha- what you have going on here is people from different ethnic groups trying to prove that they're just as good Americans as anybody else, that they have a right to be here, that they're not illegal immigrants, that they are just as good as everybody else, and that they should not be discriminated against because either they were the first group to come to America or they're the ones that discovered it. This, this tie, this, this need for a national origin myth, and, and to also to, like, to find your place in that myth, you know, to find your people's right. place in that myth, that it seems to be so compelling. I, I think uh, in your book and, and some of the other reading and research I've done, just following the way that uh, this stuff tied into things like uh, the Columbus Day Parade, for example, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. how uh, different groups felt like different holidays made it their country. And right. we, I guess... Some of this has a nastiness to it. Uh, the the oh yeah yeah, yeah. there's there's un, there, there's a real dark edge under all of this. Yeah. Um, some some of the some of the groups less others more. Um, the the Viking theory, for example, has got a lot of racist. Um, Christian nationalist aspect to it. I mean, there are there are white supremacist prison gangs who call themselves the Vinlanders. Mm. Uh, you know, there's this whole one of the most recent additions to this whole concept is that of the Salutrians. Uh, the Salutrians were genuine ancient people who lived in Iberia thousands of years ago, uh, and they made stone tools. And a few years back, some stone tools were discovered in the in the American South, which proponents said these look just like tools we know were made by these Salutrian people. Therefore, white people discovered America. Mm. Uh, and mm. so, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of that stuff. There's a couple of years ago, there was this famous case where this guy got on a, a on a tra- I think it was in Minneapolis somewhere, uh, got on a, a, a commuter train and started stabbing people and screaming about Vikings discovering America. Uh, and so there mm. there is a really angry racialist edge to some of this stuff, uh, especially in that. In that realm, like there's a there's a you know there's a a, a spectrum, um, and that is at the really dark end of the spectrum. Yeah, I I, I guess it, right. That, that at one end you have extreme uh, racism and nationalism and fascism <laughs> kind of mingling right. together, and on the other end you've got people who have a genuine. Uh, cultural interest and in, you know finding their place in this you right know, in this mix and it's mm-hmm. that wow that that's that turns out to be kind of an ugly rainbow uh it's it's just it's really full of dangerous ideas i i guess when you're dealing with mm-hmm. the mythic but you're also looking at 
the historical. W- what is the historian's job in trying to like interact with this? What, you know, a battle where part of it is absolutely never going to be provable because it's myth, and part of it is absolutely demonstrable with evidence and dates and timeline. Like, what do you do as a historian? Like, what, what's your job here? I mean, besides well, writing we, this book, what, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, we and, you know. It, Historians and archaeologists, New World archaeologists, the, we're, we're sort of on the same team here, uh, as it were, um, because they get a lot of the same stuff, uh, you know, the, a lot of the same pushback. Oh, you archaeologists, you're just, you know, you're hiding. You know, the Smithsonian knows that the Nephilim were real and they destroyed all the evidence and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're covering all this up. Um, our job is to talk about this teach people about facts and evidence and and primary sources and you know all those all those things that we try to tell people look this thing that you're you believe so passionately about it has no evidence uh you know or the or the little bit of evidence which is there you're completely misinterpreting um you know the the yeah the salutrians were real people uh, but the last Salutrian tools that we know of that were made in Europe in uh, the Iberian Peninsula were made, you know, nine thousand years before the ones we found in Georgia. Uh, and so there's, you know, there's no connection between these two. Uh, you know, they're they're trying to sort of crowbar this stuff, brute force this stuff together. And, you know, we we try our best to explain what the reality is and hope for the best. You know, we we go into this historians and archaeologists go into this with our fingers crossed because we can't force people to not be dicks. (laughs) You know, we can try to explain to them and, and talk them out of it. But in the end, there isn't that much we can do. And if we can maybe possibly convince a few people, then we put in a good day's work. It's a really fascinating book. It's got so much material in it. Um, and I think it's really important right now. Um, I think not not just for understanding the real history, but for understanding this meta conversation around mm-hmm. national myths. And especially since I happen to live here, the one that affects this country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, it's it's not the, and I, I I think I explained this fairly clearly in the book. This is not about who whose feet hit North America first. Exactly. That's not. It, it's a question of who's an American, who has the right to be here. What does it mean to be an American? Um, can we discriminate against somebody who we don't, I think I'm an American. So that means I think you're not an American. How does that affect our lives? Yeah. It's like this, yeah. you know, the study of, of monsters is really not so much about biology or folklore. It's about the history of human hatred and, and intolerance. You know, we create mm-hmm. monsters out of the stuff we're afraid of. Uh, we don't create monsters out of stuff we're not afraid of. Uh, and so that's really what the, for me, the study of monsters uh, is less about, you know, finding Bigfoot tracks in, in Oregon than it is discussing this question of why do we treat each other the way we do and how do we turn other people into monsters? I mean, we have this whole history, human history, 
of one group turning another group into a monster. And they said, well, since they're monsters, we can do anything to them that we want. Yeah. We can shovel them into ovens. We can kill their children. It doesn't matter because they're monsters and we're not. We can treat this group of immigrants as non-American because we're the real Americans. And we know we're the real Americans because we know this story about you know, Vikings, yeah. Madoc, or mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, and that yeah. sort of go. I mean, I focused on the American experience, but, uh, you know, Australia, New Zealand, same thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. I was always a big yeah. fan of the, of the Mad Max movies. Yeah. And as far all as right. I can tell, <laughs> the, all the Mad Max movies are supposed to be taking place in the outback. Mm-hmm. But what, what are there, like five Mad Max movies by now? You don't see a single Aboriginal person. Mm. anywhere in those five yes, movies. It's, yeah, yeah, the things how, yeah. how do you create this world of guys, you know, r- racing around, Raised. killing each other, and you never see a dark face? Yeah, yeah. You're making me think, too, just about uh, a term like native and the paradox with that term and how it has negative associations when it is linked to Indigenous people, Aboriginal right. people, mm-hmm. and yet it's been co-opted by white people. I see it so much here in Colorado um, where people who were born here call themselves natives and they really relish that. And it's such a point of pride. They've got bumper stickers and T-shirts. And uh, it's just funny how it has negative associations, though, when it's associated with the actual native people. It seems weird to, to have so much. It seems weird to have so much pride in where you were born. Versus like someone who's an immigrant who worked their ass off to get to a country. I've got a whole issue with this whole illegal immigrant yeah. concept. I have yet to be able to get someone from the sort of right uh, end of the political spectrum to explain to me what makes an immigrant illegal. Is it, you know, from what, as far as I can tell, it's skin color. Yeah, I I, I did notice there was a lot. Is, yeah. Pale, we, we, you're you're fine as an immigrant. Right. If we, your skin is dark, you're an Ill, Ill, uh, illegal immigrant. You know, my my personal ancestry, um, my maternal family came over from Ireland during the potato famine. Uh, my, I'm sorry, my maternal family came over from the Ireland from the during the potato famine. My paternal family comes from Poland in the early 20th century. And, uh, you know, I hear these people saying, well, these new immigrants, they don't have permission to come here and they don't enter the country. The right. When my grandfather, Antony, who was from Silesia, he comes to Ellis Island. He does that whole classic Ellis Island thing. As a kid, he shows up here all by himself when he's like nine or 10 years old and he's in the giant line. You know, we've all seen the photographs and the movies of, you know, the people at Ellis Island st- slowly getting, you know, their stamps, whatever, so they can come in. He, he gets up to the counter and the customs guy asked him three questions. What's your name? Anthony Regal. Where are you from? Silesia. Are you sick? No. All right, you're in. <laughs> And that was it. Yeah. yeah. So if that's good enough for my <laughs> grandfather and everybody else's grandfathers and mothers, why yeah. isn't it good enough for people from Central and South America? Yeah. Well, you notice we didn't have people in pickup trucks in Vermont running around trying to keep out the Canadians. It's border. It's always the southern border. 
yeah, absolutely. It is, it is racism. But I've gone through the immigration process and it is very complicated, very extensive and time-consuming and expensive too. And uh, I've always said that if Americans needed to get back into their own country and to go through the Im- immigration process, they would get refused. It's right. very hard. Now, when you when you did that, you had to take a test, right? I did have to take a test. Yes, a number of different tests. Yeah. And uh, the I vast had, majority yeah. of so-called, you know, real Americans um, could not pass that test. No, oh, I know that's true. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. And I know of other immigrants who failed it the first time because English isn't their first language. Sure. And it really does require a lot of knowledge of uh, difficult concepts um, right. in English and, and history as well. So it's, right. it's difficult. I mean, uh, uh, up, yeah. up until fairly recently, uh, all you had to do uh, was get cattle prodded onto a, you know, a steamer and somehow pitch yourself onto the shore somewhere. And that was it. You're in. Yeah. Yeah. Similar it, thing in Australia too. you pay 10 pounds and then you're in. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I, I'll be honest. I mean, I could easily see us talking for another hour or two about this and still yeah. not coming close to scratching all the stuff that's inside here. This is a yeah. really we'll have to reconvene at some yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> also true. I'm sorry it was such a big gap between your last visit and this one, but No, that's okay. You know, it's it's all right. I you know, I always have students coming up to me, when are you gonna be on Monster Talk again? Real soon. <laughs> Two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I, I appreciate you having yeah. me on. That's a, it's always been a good experience. I think you're doing a hell of a job discussing this material. Uh, it's something that should be done, uh, you know, and you get you get interesting guests to talk about interesting stuff. Plus puns. OK, well, that anybody out there in the audience who's going to be who's a Comic-Con person, uh, I'm, I, I was uh, I was enticed uh, uh, for the th- for a third time to be a speaker at New York Comic-Con, uh, which is like, I think, the second weekend in October. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I don't okay. know what day exactly we're going to be, our, our thing is going to be. Uh, I'm not even sure what I'm supposed to be talking about yet. I'll be, I'll, I'll be asked about something, you know. Uh, you know me, I can, I can show up like two minutes before the whole thing starts with an audience full of people and the MC just says, oh, talk about this. And I can go up there and talk about it for an hour. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, so if you're going to be in, if you're a Comic-Con person, I'll be, I'll be at one, probably the, probably the Thursday, uh, because that's, that's when the second string usually gets to go <laughs> was Thursday. So I'll be there for the Comic-Con in, in October. Very cool. And uh, I'm, I'm, my new research project, which I'm just starting, is you guys might and you guys might be too young for this, uh, but when I was a little kid, I was hugely influenced in my choice of career paths by these little books called Golden Guides, and they were these tiny little pocket books designed for kids to learn science and history. I've got the Golden Guide uh, tree identification. I've got golden books. Yeah. Yeah, well, that was all part of the same family. Yeah. And okay, I was hugely yeah. influenced by it. Uh, I still have my original, the original copy that I bought in Ben Franklin's uh, for, you know, a $1.50, Rocks and Minerals. And what I found so great about these, these things was that they not only showed you the science 
of you know astronomy or birds or trees or bugs or whatever. Uh, but they also would have a little section on how you as a kid could go out and do this. And, you know, like if you want to be a rock hound, you should have a backpack and you should have a magnifying glass. You should have a rock hammer and, you know, you should have a notebook where you keep notes on it. And so most of the I don't think there's a. A scientist, archaeologist or historian of, you know, of my generation who were not influenced by these and they were all written by the same guy. Whoa, I didn't know that a guy named Herbert Zim who had a PhD in botany from Columbia. And he, his sort of driving passion in life was educating children in the sciences. And so that's why he wrote all these books. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be great to, no one's ever written about this guy, really. Uh, and I discovered that there were several large caches of his correspondence and notes and things. Uh, one is in Oregon, one's in Mississippi. And I thought, you know, wouldn't that be a great idea to write a book about this guy? And so that's sort of I've been collecting up primary sources and um, the New York Public Library has got a copy of his doctoral thesis on 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 childhood education. So, so are you going to call it the Golden Guide to Herbert Zim? No, I'm going to call it <laughs> I'm going to call, I'm going to call it the Golden Guide. That'll work too. Oh, nice. He's nice. the Golden nice. Guide. Good luck with that. Interesting. Thanks. Yeah, it'll be a while. That, uh, that's how know. these things are. But thank, thank, thank you again, yeah. Brian, for coming back and talking to us and thank for writing you. this book. This is great. Yeah. It's always my pleasure. Monster Dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and I'm Karen Stolzner. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Brian Regal, author of The Battle Over America's Origin Story. A link to the book is in the show notes, as well as links to some of Brian's other interviews with us and some of his other writing. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Therapist Uncensored, Subtext, and Small Things Often. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Check out our Monster Talk merchandise at monstertalk.org forward slash store, where you can find a variety of cool products to show that you're a next level monster enthusiast. Monster Talk is produced by Monster House LLC, and our theme music is performed and written by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks so much for making Monster Talk a part of your listening life. In a Monster House presentation. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.